So this morning I want to um, explore a challenging theme for, for myself. As some of you know from the uh, message that I sent to people on the Wednesday list, I want to talk this morning on the theme of Dharmic Reflections on the 10th Anniversary of September 11th. And some of you probably didn't know that. And may or may not have come if you didn't know that. <laughs> um, but what I want to do particularly is to offer some reflections. My guess is that I will continue with a larger theme uh, <clears throat> next week um, as, as I was organizing my material, it seemed like there, you know, like uh, it would require at least two times. Um, but what I wanted to do was particularly to uh, make connections between our own inner practice, the practice that we do <clears throat> on the cushion in our daily lives, the practice of cultivating mindfulness and opening the heart, developing wisdom learning how to be more skillful with challenging situations, and to make connections with how we relate to the larger world, which is often, for many of us, confusing, overwhelming, painful, sometimes joyous, and so forth. And in part, my offering this morning comes out of a request from the group, uh, from, I believe, probably was April or May, when we talk together about what kinds of themes would we like to see explored. And one of the themes mentioned was that periodically to check in and to see how does our practice help us understand and relate to the larger world, particularly um, challenging situations. So <clears throat> that's my theme. And the, the world it's hard, right? It's, you know, especially the newspapers typically focus on the, the hard stuff or the negative stuff or the fluff stuff. <laughs> um, and um, some journals and magazines really focus on the beautiful things developing. I know one of the magazines I like to get is one out of the Northwest called Yes Magazine. Does anyone get that? Some of, some of you. It's really beautiful. It's a lot about particularly environmentally focused on sustainability, on new efforts and so forth. But I was thinking about the world and I had kind of two quotations about the, the world. Um, the first is from the 8th century from the great teacher Shanti Deva who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And he, he said, this entire world is disturbed by insanity, with insanity, due to, due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. Yeah, it's from the 8th century. Okay, one more time. This entire world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. And I believe that's true. And the ultimate confusion is not knowing our interconnection, our interdependence, and our deep nature of wisdom and love when we're not fearful and some degree safe and, and we can open up, you know, and it's, it's a tragedy. It's also powerful for me to reflect on this theme not long after coming back from three and a half weeks on retreat, right? It was a very different world, you know. In fact, most of my retreat 
I was doing concentration practice, which means I was just focused on the breath at my upper lip 18 hours a day. That's it, right? And it, um, you know, of course other things happen. I'm not always there, but it, it generally opened me up to deep, calm, peace, understanding, deepening, resting, relaxation, <coughs> and exploration of many of the really beautiful states of mind and heart that are available, you know, and then to, but I knew I wanted to address this issue, you know, and I imagine that Jack will also be doing it next Monday, and I think Deborah Chamberlain Taylor is doing it on Sunday in her day long, so we wanted to collectively have some way that Spirit Rock touches base in some way with, with these events. So, so we have that quote from Shanti Deva, this entire world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. <clears throat> and this is another way of saying something fairly similar. This is from uh, Dr. Seuss, <laughs> if I ran the zoo. Some of you may know this. It's a pretty good zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, and the fellow who runs it seems proud of it too. But if I ran the zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, I'd make a few changes. That's just what I do. <laughs> or another third take on the general state of the world. Um, this is from, uh, actually this is from... Uh, quite a while ago, maybe 10 years ago, when I helped with a teen retreat that actually Heather Sunberg was leading. You know, up, uh, up at Abayagiri Monastery, we took 15 teenagers up for three or four days at the monastery, and it was pretty cool. Anyway, and partly we had them, there was one assignment where they did a two-hour kind of vision quest type experience where they just went out on their own in the forest, and they were asked to explore a theme, and the theme was how the inside is connected with the outside, which is really our theme today. And um, some of them wrote poems, some of them did drawings and so forth. This is one of the poems from Nick Riggle, I think from Sonoma County, um, who would be in his late 20s now, probably, mid or late 20s. The outside seems conditioned by the inside, and back and forth. What an obnoxious pattern. <laughs> okay. So, with that guidance, with that guidance from Shanti Deva, Gerald McGrew, and Nick Riggle, we will proceed. Okay. So, um, so it's just reflecting, it's important, you know, that anniversaries sometimes give us a reason to look more deeply, whether it's birthdays or graduations or, you know, turning 30, 40, 50, 60, 20, 10, whatever, 80, 90. And often we don't do that, often we just rush on by or sometimes they're just platitudes, right? You know, often for times of reflection and, and I, I haven't read too much of the newspaper since coming back, but I imagine that there'll be a mix, you know, some platitudes and just kind of conformist thinking and, and some things that are deeper. So it's important. It's been, it's been quite a 
you know, the last decade's been challenging and difficult, to say the least, right? You know, and in fact, many of us, I was reflecting, many of us come to Spirit Rock in a way to get away from that, right? And so I'm very conscious sitting in this seat that sometimes people are uncomfortable when we direct attention to the world. And I want to try to frame this today so that it really, if, you, if you're really, if your focus is more inner and it's not appropriate to give too much attention, that this still will be relevant because I'll make the, you know, just make the connections um, between basically core teachings that really help us wherever we direct attention. And, and, that, and, and my, what I'm going to say is that actually the dynamics, when we look to our personal experience or to our interpersonal or group or organizational experience, or to the larger world, the dynamics of how we get confused and reactive, as well as how we cultivate wisdom and love, are actually very similar. That's what I have found from my work <clears throat> over the years with connecting the inner and the outer and being involved with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and various training programs to help people connect inner and outer. And it's really what I expressed in, in the book that I the last book that I did called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which is really about the parallels between inner work and how we address the world. I think that the dynamics are the same. If we learn lessons in an inner way, we can apply them in a more outer way. You know, there are complexities we have to draw from. That's, that'll be one of the themes I'll explore. So very difficult last decade in many ways. Some beautiful things developing that often don't reach the newspapers in terms of I would say, you know, more awareness and movement towards sustainability and that's a big thing happening for Spirit Rock is really, I think, is a lot of ferment, you should know, uh, towards moving in that direction. Um, a lot of, uh, maybe for many people, more of a sense of interconnection, but there have also obviously been really difficult things. There have been several wars, military interventions, and as a result of that, millions of people killed most of whom we don't know about. You know, there's been increased fear in the society, certain, you know, significant amount of scapegoating. You know, I have um, one of my um, past students did, uh, did a long piece of work. She's originally from Pakistan. She did a long amount, she did a very beautiful piece of work which she published on sort of the, um, you know, the, um, challenges for Muslim Americans post 9-11. I think you know, many of you know about that. And it's you know, sometimes directed towards immigrants, but particularly people sometimes associated. You know, just fear, as we know in our minds, where we can connect the personal practice with the, what happens in larger society. We know that when we're fearful, our minds go all sorts of places, right? And that we're very suspicious and you know, we just want to be safe. And, and that imperative to be safe can lead us to do things which later we would regret. Because we, we just want to be safe, we want to be secure. And we can sometimes be a little crazy in that. I think we know that personally. So again, we want to keep, making the, keep drawing the parallels between that. You know, and, and as well, large numbers of Americans died both on 9-11 you know, very, very tremendous loss. One of my colleagues where I used to teach, his sister died, and I think you know, I don't know, does anyone directly know 
uh, someone who had a loss in his or her family? Some of you, you know. Yeah. And, you know, what's also painful is that a much greater number of people have died in the wars, Americans. And in fact, probably, I think, um, a larger number of soldiers have died as a result of suicide than as the result of actual battle, right? You know, so the, the um, you know, and this has impact, you know, on our society. And obviously this all has impact on the economy, you know, which again, not, not often mentioned, but the wars, you know, wars have an impact, you know. Three trillion dollars expended has an impact, not often mentioned. So hard, a hard decade. So, um, how to approach this whole area? And I want today. I want to say a little bit more generally about how to pro- approach just relating to larger issues in the world, and then address somewhat briefly uh, reflections on 9/11. Probably go into more detail next time. So, the first the first thing I want to say is that it's difficult. It's difficult to know. Uh, what to do. It's temperamentally it's hard. Many of us actually don't even probably like to read the newspapers, you know, at times, or we have these cycles of sometimes more inner work, sometimes more outer work, and, and it's hard. It's, it's also very confusing to know how to respond. For many of us, we might, would like to do something in terms of all the larger issues, but it's sometimes hard to know what to do. And we can feel paralyzed or confused or overwhelmed. How many can relate to one of those three emotions or more? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we have, we have those kind of emotions. And, you know, and sometimes it also can feel like our personal or interpersonal lives are hard enough. I remember when I was in my 20s and I was really gung-ho on changing the world and I talked to the mother of a good friend of mine, and she said, you know, it's hard enough to keep my marriage healthy. And you want to change the world? Good luck. <laughs> right? So it's, uh, there's a truth to that, right? <laughs> that, the, that it's hard just, you know, our, our everyday lives. And it's also challenging, I think, to talk about these issues from this teaching seat because there are a lot of tricky issues, you know. It's, um, I, you know, I think, for example, um, Spirit Rock, like other groups that have a nonprofit status, we're enjoined not to take on partisan politics, which usually means candidates. It doesn't mean not dealing with issues. But they're, they're, it's, they're tricky things. We also, as a teacher, I don't want to pronounce my views as if they're true or be dogmatic, you know. And luckily we have in the Buddhist teachings a lot of attention to attachment to views, which is a huge issue when we start looking at the larger world and something I'm going to come back to. You know, but it's, you know, I want to, I want to kind of um, work with a balance of how do we, how do I really be clear and um, address issues with not wanting to impose my views and not wanting to make those who might not share the views unwelcome. You know, I think that's, you know, even if 
you know, even if many or most might share my views, which I haven't disclosed yet. <laughs> so, but but there's th- those are concerns that I take very seriously, you know, and also in the Buddhist context, we don't know very well how to make connections between our practice and larger ethical issues, what we might call social ethics. Other traditions like um, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, and I think Hinduism as well, do that better. Buddhism has been predominantly inner-focused in its history, and I think also in the way that it's been brought to the, to the uh, West. And that makes it harder to make these connections. You know, we, have to, we don't have a long traditions, as exist in other traditions, of making connections between our inner work and the, um, how to bring that out on a larger scale. You do find that in other, with other traditions. Um, you know, and it's also, I think, an open question. Might we, you know, should we take lo- stands on larger issues? I think there are a lot of questions, you know. And I was thinking of this in terms of reflecting that for me, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is an exemplar in these ways. You know, that he, and you know, I think in a few ways, and I'll get to in terms of teachings, that there was both a deep rootedness in love and also a willingness to say what was wrong in his view and to hold those together. We might say it's to hold together critical comments with love, which is really, really hard to do. And I think that's really a key to addressing this. And that, you know, so for him, he um, expressed often a deep love of the country that he criticized. And you can feel that in his writings. You know? Do you know what I mean? That there was a way that he, you know, that he often spoke of the deep love for the, you know, the I have a dream speech, is really about a love of who we are at our best. And I think that never left him. He wasn't burned out. He wasn't cynical. He really carried that love and also, you know, the teaching from the Christian tradition of loving one's enemies. And so there was a whole love ethic which was the basis for everything. And he combined that with critical comments. And when he spoke about Vietnam, as he did towards the end of his life, very forthrightly, he was extremely unpopular. We don't always remember that. He was forthright and spoke in a very, very strong way. You know, he spoke about what he called the evils, the three poisons, very similar language to the Buddha. He talked about the three poisons of racism, poverty, poverty and um, racism, poverty, and militarism. And he spoke out against those. And near the end of his life, 72% of European Americans and 55% of African Americans thought it was wrong of him to speak about Vietnam. Interesting, right? It wasn't, wasn't well received. You know? so, so a lot of issues there. So I wanted to offer two main guides for connecting the... Um, larger social issues with our practice. And this this will be what I I will follow. One of them is is what I've mentioned so far, is to see the parallels, to keep the parallels in mind between how I work with my own personal life, my own personal practice, 
particularly with challenging issues. Because when we look to the world and we look to 9-11, I would say, I, I, like to, I, I like often to say that we have to really know what degree of difficulty we're taking on. Mm-hmm. Reflecting on the larger world is degree of difficulty 100 on the scale of 10. You know, and, and, and so what I often find myself saying is that to practice, well, let's at least say that it's 10. That it's often really important to be able to deal with the difficult tests in our lives to keep practicing with the easier ones and to really build a foundation of practice. I find this myself saying this a lot, particularly as I focus on challenging situations. We learn and we build capacities and if we only practice when we get to the hard stuff, it won't work. We have to keep practicing, keep practicing. Then it will be available for the hard stuff. It's a reason to, keep, to really keep on, on practicing. And I also wanted to bring up something that I learned from Joanna Macy, who's a great teacher, sometimes teaches here, one of my mentors and, and a colleague, who's also addressed a lot how our inner practice relates to the larger world. And this is really important, I think, and I was going to talk about it later, I think I'll talk about it now. It's that it's very crucial if we think of contributing, let's say, to a more peaceful world, to a more peaceful, sustainable, just world, whatever language we use. And I imagine that all of us want to do that, and it is sometimes confusing and overwhelming. Something that Joanna said really helps for me, because I am not going to be imploring you to all go out and be, you know, activists or something like that. I think it's a little more uh, nuanced than that. That Joanna said that change towards a more peaceful, just, sustainable world happens in three main ways. And the point I'm going to be making here is that we each have to find our place and to feel connected with people doing all three things. So one type of um, response that she said is to be able to stop damage from being done. And this is usually what activists do. Stop further damage from being done. Prevent further damage, whatever it is, ecological damage, wars, whatever. And it's to try to respond in, in some way. That's more outward action, you know, fits the usual... Um, type of activity that we associate often with with many activists. Secondly, she said, change has to also occur in the transformation of institutions. And this is where those of us who are, let's say, trying to shift, for example, maybe how um, medicine is done or health, how we, different approaches to health or different approaches to education, different approaches to psychotherapy, different approaches to um, um, food, how we work with food, different approaches to economics. I imagine that many of you are really connected with that, that your own work is helping to do things in a different way. How many of you think that at least some of your activities could fall in that category? Yeah, I think that's true. And then the, the third category she had was changing consciousness. Changing consciousness because there has to be a different consciousness for a peaceful world, right? That's what we're doing here. That's what we do when we meditate. 
And it could be changing consciousness of the body, a yoga teacher, someone um, doing education work to bring more sensitivity to children about um, trees. That would fit in that category. And she's saying that bringing, now that our response to the larger world could fit in any of those categories and probably others as well. And what I have found important in saying that, and I've sometimes given retreats for activists, and I tell them that, and they, there's a sigh of relief because somehow we think, I have to do everything. You know, I have to get out there. And if I'm not, I feel guilty or confused or something. And I think holding that bigger picture means we ask, what are my gifts? Where am I called? How do I contribute to this? And to see those areas as connected. That's really, really important. That's what I find a lot of people don't do. We think, oh, I'm just teaching yoga. I'm not doing anything. But if we make those connections, maybe we teach yoga and we're aware of the larger social conditioning about how we look at our bodies. And we bring that into teaching yoga and we're making the connections. That's what personally I think is really, really important, to make those connections and to find where we, where we are. And then to see the parallels between what we're learning individually or in our interpersonal relationships and how we are in the larger world. And that's what I'll be exploring the rest of the time. And the teaching that I thought I wanted to bring in that I think is really crucial is a version of what uh, I was talking about in relation to Dr. King, to connect, really to connect um, basically love and wisdom. That this for me is the core guide that helps us with these larger social issues. You know, that we sometimes talk about the Dharma as connecting wisdom and compassion, connecting the clear mind with the ability to have the heart be open. And um, to really develop the qualities of the heart as well as the qualities of clarity and wisdom. And I'm very inspired by what I learned from the Vietnamese tradition from a friend named Minduk who, who told me that actually they innovated in Vietnam. They had from the Mahayana tradition the emphasis on wisdom and compassion. But they said, in a condition of difficulty and crisis, we need to add one further pillar, which is that of courage. So they talk about wisdom, compassion, and courage. And in a way, wisdom is the mind dimension. Um, the compassion is the heart dimension. And courage, in a way, is the body dimension or the dimension of action. And that, what I'm going to suggest is that the two core guides for, con- for dealing with larger issues are, number one, to see the parallels between individual practice and dealing with the collective. And secondly, focus on this teaching about wisdom, compassion, and courage. Two quotations, and then I'll, and I'll talk more directly about those three. The first is from Gary Snyder. He was talking really about the connection of West and East. He said, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. 
Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. It's a beautiful. And this is, this is from Ramdas about this question of balancing. He's balancing the heart and the mind. How to do that? Because I think that's key for our practice, for our being with difficult situations, whether they're personal, interpersonal, or the larger world. And this is, this, is, this is what he said. And for me, this was a guide for the whole talk, really. The hardest state to be in is one in which you keep your heart open to the suffering that exists around you and simultaneously keep your discriminating wisdom. It is far easier to do one or the other. To keep your heart open, get lost in pity, empathy, suffering, righteous indignation, etc., or remain remotely detached as a witness to it all. Once you understand that true compassion is the blending of the open heart and the quiet mind, it is still difficult to find the balance. Most often we start out doing these things sequentially. We open our hearts and get lost in the melodrama. Then we meditate and regain our quiet center by pulling back from so much openness. Then we again open and get sucked into the dance. So it goes, cycle after cycle. Anyone relate to that? (laughs) It takes a good while to get the balance. At first, the discriminative awareness part of the cycle makes you feel rather like a cold fish. You feel as if you had lost your tenderness and caring. Yet each time you open again to the tender emotions, you get lost in the drama and see your predicament. If you really want to help others who are suffering, you just have to develop the balance between heart and mind, (laughs) such that you remain soft and flowing, yet simultaneously clear and spacious. There you go. End of talk. (laughs) Could could end right there. Um, To stay right on the edge of that balance, it seems impossible, but you do it. At first, when you achieve this balance, it is self-consciously maintained. Ultimately, however, you merely become a statement of the amalgam of the open heart and quiet mind. Then there is no more struggle. It is just the way you are. Okay. There's the assignment for the next (laughs) few years of our life. (laughs) Longer. Okay. So... (coughs) So what I want to do is to give a brief account of wisdom, compassion, and courage in relationship to the last 10 years, very briefly today, and then in more depth next time. I'll be really brief and just open it up then. And so I think the, you know, the grounding of the heart is almost the first thing we do. I think that's really, really crucial. You know, that we, for many of us, where it's to come back to the heart and the the, even before we, we look very far, to work with... And, and I, what, I, what I would like maybe to help you think about how do you deal with the larger challenge of the world, reflect right now on a challenging situation personally or interpersonally. Just take a moment. Reflect on something that's challenging. If you don't have one, maybe someone else can give you an extra. <laughs> <laughs> just take a moment, just reflect on a challenging, just a challenge, something that tends to knock you off balance, personal, interpersonal.
maybe at work, whatever it is. Just being in touch with this, I'd invite you to hold that as a reference point. When we look to these teachings and look how to bring it to a larger world, you can continually ask, how would I bring it to the, my immediate world in this particular situation? Because that's our training ground, really, and it gets transferred. So I think we first really rest in the heart. We do our metta practices, our forgiveness, our joy. And I have found it really crucial in being with difficult personal or interpersonal organizational issues to really have an active heart practice, to really be doing it a lot. You know, where when I talk to friends, for example, from Asia, from, I was thinking of friends from Thailand who were in difficult social situations, you know, with a dictatorship and so forth and were active. They did a lot of metta to avoid a certain bitterness from developing, a certain kind of burnout. So I think we know that even with a difficult interpersonal situation that can develop, right? To do the metta, to really have those be an ongoing practice. You know, to tune in, you know, many of us tuned in to the pain originally from 9-11. You know, I, I, it was very poignant. Some of you may have read the biographies of people who were killed that were in the New York Times for quite a few months. Anyone read, remember reading those? Some of the, um, you know, and I, I actually brought some of them in here. They're extremely poignant. This was, it's, you know, I was thinking on retreat or maybe anywhere, it's unimaginable to think of 3,000 people dying quickly. I mean, it's unimaginable. You know, I was thinking in a, in a retreat frame of mind, just to see an insect get hurt is, is hard, you know, or I think of the Buddhist, the teachings of the Buddha, he says, we ethically take on the um, precept not to harm others. And he said, we stop the onslaught against all living beings. Passages, beautiful passages like that. And so to imagine people being killed when we're, when we're even somewhat open, it's, it's almost unimaginable and, and, and hard to take in, right? Hard to take in. And it's beautiful to read some of these stories of the people who were killed. It's very, very poignant. These were each full, beautiful, promising lives. You know? And I'll come back later to say that, of course, we, off, we almost never do that with people who are not Americans, you know, which is a big issue. You know? so, but to read, or to read the consequences, there was something in the New York Times in the last uh, month that I, that I was looking at, which talked about a couple, let me just see where it is, just, just a very brief comment. This is a, there was a, someone who worked um, worked in the building as a as a broker, and um, it talked about his parents who lost their son, and they talked about that. And in the ten years, they created a foundation in his name. His father has suffered major health issues. You know, so this is the you know this is just the tuning into that. It's the resting in the heart, like we do at the end of the sitting. It's think it's really really important to, to keep staying there and to keep coming back to that. We're in a conflict, a difficulty, dealing with something that's really hard. Somehow to keep coming back to the heart, keep, keep coming back to 
um, what's difficult as a practice, really, really crucial, you know, to really stay in the heart. I know working with Joanna Macy, where we sometimes open up to really difficult, larger social issues, the core is that we stay in the heart and we support each other in doing that. Because otherwise we get burned out. It's too hard. So we stay in the heart, we cultivate compassion. And in this case, you know, I think uh, we, we also want to do it ultimately towards all who are affected. You know, I'll come back to that. The wisdom dimension is really, really crucial. We, we, um, and we want to remember to connect the wisdom dimension with the heart. Just I'll give one or two wisdom teachings that are really crucial. Maybe next time I think I'll talk some about views. But for today, I wanted to talk about um, two teachings related to wisdom. One is understanding causes and conditions. And the other is my favorite teaching of the two arrows. That um, we are taught that all actions have causes and conditions connected with them. And that part of wisdom is to explore the causes and conditions and to know what they are for anything that's happening in our own lives and for anything that we look out into the world and see. And, and I remember there was, uh, I think, Achan Amaro, um, after 9-11, gave a talk. And he said, in a way, this couldn't be otherwise. There were causes and conditions which led to it. One of the difficult things for me has been to see how the opportunity to reflect on the cause and conditions has not been embraced. I have to say that. that in fact, there's a taboo against reflecting on causes and conditions that I've seen. There's a t- public taboo. One can't do that. It's, a, it's, it's, as, if it's um, as if we're deliberately trying to be ignorant. I have to say that. There's deliberate public ignorance, which has consequences. And that's, um, I think we have to identify that, that we don't want to know the effects of our actions. We don't want to know the reasons for what happened. We really um, don't want to go there publicly because clearly it would go into difficult territory. It would go into some, some of our history, which we don't want to look at. And we're not good at this. We're not very good at learning from painful situations, and most countries are not. You know, very few countries have done something like what South Africa did with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, very few countries have done that to say, there's a painful past, we want to look at it and understand it. You know? And interestingly that that process was led by Desmond Tutu, who has views very close to Buddhist views, I think. You know? And so, um, you know, that's something that we can ask in my own difficulties, in my own conflicts. Do I want to look honestly at the causes and conditions? Or do I tend to go, what, to a defensive posture? How many of us know how we, when we're in a conflict, just go to very primal way of reacting, which is, me good, you bad. <laughs> End of discussion. Anyone ever do that? <laughs> okay, three or four out of the group. <laughs> okay. And so you see, do you know how we do that? Was it any different on a larger scale? Not too, in my view, not too different. Some complexities, again, it's not to demonize, it's to say there are reasons for that. We can understand 
the, the, the wish to defend, to find security and so forth. These are really important needs that our leaders in their own way were trying to get to. So I don't want to at all criticize that. It's really the strategies to gain security that we can question, not the wish for security. And that's really important for being with conflicts. It's to really honor the underlying need of people with whom we're in conflict. We can almost always find something beautiful and legitimate in any of our opponents. How many of you believe that? It's hard to accept sometimes, right? I'm asking these provocative questions, I think, just to... But, but take that model, you know, and we can look more widely. Did we... Might, what might it be to look at causes and conditions accurately? What might it be to actually know the effects of our actions? What might it be to know more intimately the people who were killed in Iraq or Afghanistan? You know, many millions, you know, or to know more intimately the soldiers who died of suicide. We don't want to make that public very much. You know, so to, to look at causes and conditions and to look also at this, this fundamental teaching of the two arrows, which really points to our teaching, that we, that we know this teaching that when we have something painful happen, we can call that the first arrow. We all sometimes have painful experiences, right? We're, we have um, physical pain, emotional pain, difficult interactions, injustice, and we have pain. The teaching says that the, that the person who is not practicing will tend to shoot a second arrow at oneself or other as if that second arrow is going to solve things. Reaction. In other words, I have physical pain, I contract, I react. That's the second arrow. Emotional pain, I blame myself, I blame my other, blame another. It goes on, can go on for a long time. I can have a difficult interaction and I can be emotionally affected for weeks or months or hold it when I see that person in two years and it comes right back because it's stored in the nervous system, right? And so, and we react like that. That's called the second arrow and the, the work of the practitioner is to learn not to shoot the second arrow. In part, that means to be with what's difficult, to be with what's painful, to notice the tendencies to react, and to, from an ethical point of view, choose not to, and then from a point of view of inner work, transform the reactivity. Really, really hard as the degree of difficulty gets harder, right? But that's our work. That's what we do. And that's why when we're doing that, we're contributing to a culture of peace every moment. When I have a coworker who says something really that's really hard and painful for me and I don't just give the same in return, I'm contributing to a culture of peace. Every moment I practice like that, I'm contributing. For me, that's all connected with the larger issue. But also, I think looking at our practice helps with understanding and wisdom. So we have the heart practices, we have wisdom, and then we have this aspect of courage, of how to, how to respond, what to do. And I was talking with Sylvia yesterday, and she was saying that immediately after 9-11 in this Wednesday group, the group as a whole ended the session 
by taking the ethical precepts and committing to them as a form of action. How many remember that? That we, that we did that. I was thinking of doing that maybe as a way of finishing today. That, um, you know, the courage aspect, which I love bringing in that third dimension, the action aspect, is to really ask very deeply, what's my responsibility? How might I respond? It's really asking that in every moment, but we might ask that in relation to the larger issues. How might I respond if we take that model from Joanna Macy? What's appropriate for me? How can I connect my own life and efforts with responding to the larger, larger system? Not easy. You know? But I think probably most of us feel called to do that in some way, but we often don't know what to do or how to do it. And yet it's important. Angela Zarian says, action relieves anxiety. <laughs> you know, that the action can make, can make a difference. So how many of you would like to, in some way, have part of our response be to retake the ethical precepts? How many of you would like to do that? I think I'll do it briefly now. Let me see where my precepts are. So if you'd like to, we'll do this real briefly. And the precepts, as you know, are the precept to abstain from the taking of life, to not take that which is not given, and to be careful with the energies of sexuality, speech, and substances which shift consciousness. So I'll just read these very briefly and just take a pause and reflect inwardly as to what these mean for you and how you would make this commitment maybe connected with your larger commitment to yourself and the world. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life, For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from unwise speech. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness. So these precepts are part of the guide to how we respond, how we, how we act, how we um, find our own way of responding. And for many people, there's a wish to interpret those precepts so that it's not just about my own private or face-to-face behavior, but when I say I refrain from the taking of life, we might, like Thich Nhat Hanh, interpret that, and this is also in the suttas, in a a related way, 
he says, do not kill, but he also says, do not let others kill. In other words, it's not just about what I personally do, but it's also about, or in, in the suttas it says, do not kill, do not approve of others killing. It's not just personal, but also goes into the social. So I'll stop here and we'll take a moment just to pause and then we can have some discussion. Thank you for your um, careful listening. Not the usual kind of Dharma talk. (laughs) Sometimes I like to talk just about the beauty of equanimity and (laughs) mindfulness and so forth. So this is maybe a challenge for me, maybe also for listeners. So thank you. So are there any reflections or or, um, questions? Yeah, please. I just want to thank you for doing this. And uh, it's been helpful already. And I look forward to next week. Yeah. And I just wanted to add, I thought, as you were saying it about Martin Luther King, that he died in 68 when the war was still building up. Yeah. And the populace was still, a lot of people were still gung-ho. Yeah. And then as, you know, seven years later when the war ended, they probably were cheering his ideas on. Yeah. So it was a particular period yeah. when that poll yeah. was taken. Interesting how things changed. Yes, th- thank you. Thank you for your support <laughs> yeah, of, of giving the talk. Should we use the microphone? Would that be possible? Just so people can hear. Yeah, I think that uh, when we look to the often views that are not, we're not very comfortable with in the present, uh, 10 or 20 years later, there's a change of view, you know. It's, it's, I, I actually find historical analogies helpful for activating moral, the immoral imagination, such as saying, what would I do at a time of slavery? If I was living in the time of slavery, most people just went about their lives, right? Would I want to do that? And most of us probably, there's no moral ambiguity about slavery. Probably, at the, I think at the time, that wasn't the way people thought. You know, or something, you know, think of something else like that. Please, other... Um, oh. Testing. Um, I just wanted to... Re- I don't know if this is on or not. Can you hear me with yeah. or without? Is it on? Yes, it is on. It is on, fine. Um, the day after 9-11, my mother called me from London and said how very sorry she felt for the American people because they were not used to experiencing this kind of mass death in their own country yeah. the way so many other countries have been. She was particularly remembering, of course, World War II yeah. and the bombings and the Blitzkrieg in London, which she survived, and of course many of us I, I survived. Um, and, and there's an attitude that develops um, and changes 
within <coughs> oneself on a, on a personal level uh, when you no longer know what will happen the yeah. next day. And during World War II, that wasn't the experience of the American people at yeah. home, generally. Yeah. And so she, she was filled with compassion for the experience yeah. there, and she was in tears yeah. listening to that. I, I just felt I wanted to contribute that. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah. thank you. It's a huge, huge shock. And I was also thinking of, um, there was a, um, a teacher's meeting right at 9-11. I, I was actually somewhere else then. I, w I was actually, on the morning of 9-11, we were on the last day of our first retreat of a two-year program on socially engaged spirituality. <laughs> you know, we had people from all over the world, actually. Um, but I remember there was a teacher's meeting um, I believe here at Spirit Rock, and Robert Hall, some of you know, just went out and sobbed. He came back and said, things will never be the same. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I watched some news last night, and, and um, the part I watched was about um, how this fact that was with me all morning today as I was sitting here, about in the Horn of Africa, you know, there's this, um, people are starving in, in um, Somalia and it's spreading and they said, this statistic stayed with me as we were talking, you were talking about yeah. 3,000 people dying here, I mean dying in 9-11, that in the next few months that 750,000 people could die just in the next few months yeah. and that, not to get political, but it's that our government is voting, Congress is voting this week, and they want to cut back the aid to Africa by 75%. And it, it just was with me so much thinking about, and when you said, we don't think about it um, outside of America, uh, non-Americans, and I, I just was so, so much thinking about those people and the faces. So it just was really with me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Everyone here? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Other reflections or questions, thoughts? I think over. Um, yes, yes. And then I think we'll end with end with these last two. Hi. <coughs> Of course I have compassion for the people and the families who died in 9-11, but it has always seemed curious to me to piggyback onto your statement that, and I don't quite understand why people get are, were so upset about 9-11 in, um, you know, as opposed to other parts of the world when so many other people are dying too. To me, it, it felt the same. And I, I honestly, I other than just a sense of nationalism, like what you said about Robert Hall, I honestly don't quite get it. What, what's the difference? Why, why were people, uh, you know, at, aware people so much more upset about 9-11 than other, other similar, other events in the world where people die in the same numbers or more? Mm -hmm. um, big question. Question, big question of uh, why people were so upset or, um, well, um, 
I, I, to, to me, it seems like there is, um, there's not moral equivalence between uh, certain kinds of Americans dying and people in the rest of the world dying. We obviously do not take those as morally equivalent. And um, there was something about, uh, I think something also about the uh, attack, the sense of safety. I think it, it aroused fear. It aroused great fear in people. Do you remember, I mean, I knew people who were living in Washington, D.C., you know, and there was the anthrax attack, which actually probably was, you know, it's not, almost certainly not from anyone from another country. And there was tremendous fear. And I think so we have to understand the fear. You, we can ask, why was there so much fear? Uh, but it was, it was basically a feeling unsafe. Uh, and of, uh, also, I think the, in the worldview that framed what this was about postulated that we were under attack from evil. Right? I, I mean, so there's a framing of it that, um, again, not wanting to look at causes and conditions and actually look at the reasons, which could open up deep ref- inner reflection. And, you know, I, I mean, I hesitate to say this a little bit, but I, I'm aware I, there, there's kind of a, uh, there's kind of a, a psychological and moral regression that comes when one's attacked, basically. You know, there, there's, I think, developmentally, children learn at about age four or five that when something bad happens to them, it might possibly be connected with their own behavior. And so, in a way, there is a regression to a previous stage. That kind of understanding wasn't present in the national dialogue. So we could, we could, we could have compassion in that way, say that there was a regression, there was a movement to a regressed state of fear and very primitive thinking, so to speak. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and people capitalized on that. Yeah, <laughs> and certain politicians maybe more cynically manipulate that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, but, but it seems like there was that sense of safety and it's a certain kind of, again, it's, I think that's, I mean, this is where Buddhist teachings do help, but I think that the teachings about how we kind of live in bubbles of irreality you know, and don't see the world clearly. This is a lot of the teachings. A lot of our teachings are to see, well, and again, it's not that only they do it. We can see how we do the same, something similar when we, you know, just look at any really tense, polarized situation that you're in. And how much does our thinking become simplistic and polarized and there's the, the opponent has no, nothing to say on his or her side. I mean, I mean, I think, how many, how many, I'll ask the question differently this time. How many of us do not do that? I won't ask how many do it. How many of us do not do that? Right, so if, if, you're, if you don't do that, we will exchange seats. <laughs> um, but there's something about that, that it's, it's a movement to, uh, you know, a kind of um, blindness, really. And self-righteousness. And, and that, um, you know, and that the positing of the, the um, positing of the act is coming from evil. So it's going to a, kind of a primitive theology, you might say. That's my quick analysis. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's, um, again, I think we can make connections between how we see, how we do something similar. You know, so, and maybe last, last comment or question, Marty. I think that um, many of us who are experiencing um, maybe not knowing where the next month's rent money is going to come from, um, you know, can have a little taste of the kind of fear that happens when you feel that you are somehow or other very personally affected. And uh, I find in my own experience that what, autumn, what naturally happens is a kind of contraction and that I have to take care of myself and that I don't have anything to, to give um, mm-hmm. outside of taking care of myself. And if we think of that on a, a larger scale, um, we in this country, beca- we felt impervious somehow, falsely so, but impervious and uh, like nothing could, could go wrong in a certain way. And then something did, and it just completely cracked the psyche of the of the country. It seems, and uh, you know, huge amounts of spending on military, uh, you know, worries about the economic situation at home, and nothing to to really use in a compassionate way for others in the world. Anyway, that's. That's sort of my little analogy between the mm-hmm. personal and... Mm-hmm. Thank you. So my... <clears throat> thank you, Marty. So my invitation for the next week <clears throat> is to work with what I was suggesting as these two core guides for exploring this territory. The first is to see the connection between our own inner practice and these larger issues, just as we've been doing in these last comments. You know, to really see how... Are there times when I act like very reactive when I feel attacked or when I feel um, something has been done in an offending way or there's something painful? You know, and see this as part of my practice. So to see that, those analogies between <clears throat> inner practice and how we might respond to the world as well as get a sense of what one's own personal contribution is to a more peaceful, just, sustainable world. Maybe to reflect on that. And the second is to carry this teaching of the combination, the integration of wisdom, compassion, and courage for the, the clear seeing and the open heart and then the responsiveness, the taking of action out of compassion. So those two, the inner-outer parallels and then the, the, guide, the guide, this beautiful guide and teaching. I loved how Ramdas expressed it, you know, this balance he was expressing in terms of the heart and the mind. But how do we bring all those together? And that's something that's very much personal, and we can also have it be a guide for the larger world. So may our, may our inquiries, may our presence, may our practice, may our actions individually and together, may they make a difference for the benefit of others and for a more peaceful, just, and sustainable world. Thank you so much for your attention and see you next week.